Good morning once again. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ephesians. We're working our way through the book of Ephesians. This series is titled Life. There's an app for that. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. We're taking on a pretty good chunk here this weekend. We're going to talk about walking in the light. Walking in the light. How many are still here from our... uh, our nightclub days, when we used to meet at the nightclub, the old nightclub. Okay, quite a number of you. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, it was an old kind of burned out nightclub. We went in and rebuilt it and uh, lived there for a couple, about six years or so. It was over at 17th Avenue and Bell Road. That place was kind of a maze of, uh, of rooms. Anybody ever get lost in the back? When we used to go back in there, we'd get lost in the back and it was really dark. And when we were building it out, and there would be actually transients that would uh, work their way back in, the, in there during the winter. They would hide out in there to keep warm and uh, in the summer to keep uh, cool. And so from time to time, you know, you'd be walking through the building and it would frighten you uh, when you would find someone in the building. What are you doing in here? And so uh, I was working my way through the back rooms one time and uh, I don't know why I couldn't find the light switch, but walked almost all the way into one of the rooms in the back. And I I mean, I I looked and I saw this scary looking creature that just, it frightened me. And it was like, whoa, you know how when it just catches you off guard and your heart kind of goes right up to your throat and, uh, and you, you almost wet your pants. And uh, it's like, uh, and uh, I, it, it stunned me, startled me. I kind of went back, kind of backpedaled a little bit and then went over to try to find the, you can never find a light switch when you need to. You know, you're feeling all over. I know that thing's here somewhere. Finally flipped it on only to realize that I, had, I looked at myself in the mirror. There was a mirror in that room and it, and it frightened me. In that, in that darkness, uh, and it helped to have the light on, then I knew a little bit more that there was nobody there. It was me that I was looking at. And uh, that's so much like how life is. There's so many things that I was, uh, I had doubts and questions and fears, and the more that I have really encountered Christ, and I know Christ as the light of this world, as it tells us in John eight twelve that he is the light of this world, the, the more a lot of those uh, a lot of the light of who he is has dispelled the darkness in our lives. If you're feeling a little bit like life is uh, kind of you're stumbling through the dark, I would encourage you to get closer to the light of Jesus. Because when we talk about walking in the light, it's really, it's, it certainly represents truth, insight, vision, revelation, righteousness. But more importantly, all of that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. A verse that has always brought a lot of comfort to me through the years is Psalm 27.1. Familiar with it? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I think that a lot of times we, are, uh, we have doubts and fears and anxieties and all these things. And if we could just get closer to the light of who Jesus is. That's what you need more than anything. That's what you need this morning is to just to get closer to the light, get closer to who Jesus is. And as he begins to dispel the darkness in our lives, it's the most important thing that can happen to you. I know that it's, it's helped me out tremendously. And uh, that's what we're talking about, walking in the light. Let me give you a couple verses to kind of, as we head into our intro, then we'll pray, we'll look at our text, and we'll kind of unpack it. But First John... Chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I think that walking in the light is, he's not talking about perfection because he wouldn't have said the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, nor would he say the next couple of verses, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those are the next two verses after verse 7. You've got verses 8 and 9. So he wouldn't, he's not talking perfection when he, he's talking about walking in the light. But I believe that he is talking about evidence. I do believe he's talking about progress as we, as we walk closer to Christ as we get to know him. And so let me set this up so that you understand. We're on the back half of the book of Ephesians. The front half is, do you guys remember? It's about the wealth, what we have in Jesus. It's our identity in Christ. And then the second half, uh, chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, is about our walk. But don't don't confuse. We're going to talk about our walk, but our walk comes out of our wealth. Our responsibility as Christians always comes out of our riches. And so you always need to understand that. Otherwise, it becomes, a, uh, it becomes more kind of law. But uh, and it kind of, it, it'll feel like it's hammering you, but it's only to bring you back to, are you truly walking in the light? Do you really know Jesus? Do you have fellowship with him? We don't walk in the light and become Christians being saved by what we do. We, we walk, we become Christians, and therefore we walk in the light. We become Christians, therefore we walk in the light. We are saved by what has been done for us through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me on that? So it's not walking in the light, you become a Christian. You become a Christian, therefore you walk in the light. So don't confuse that. You become religious if you, if you uh, flip that. So it's out of a heart that is smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross, captivated by what he's done. You have any idea what he's done for you? Do you have any idea how much he loves you? Do you have any idea what he thinks, feels, and has in store for you and what he's already done for you? If you did this morning and you were living in the reality of it, you'd be going, wow, unbelievable. You have a sense of awe and wonder that you have him in your life. And then it's out of that, then you walk in the light. And so now we're going to look at what it means to walk in the light. And we'll keep coming back to that understanding. But that's critical to the Christian life. Otherwise, you become legalistic. It becomes religion. It becomes ritual, routine. You're kind of going through the motions. It becomes rules without the relationship part. It's always relationship and then you got these guidelines and ground rules and, and the rules, so to speak. And, and in fact, when you look at the Old Testament, a lot of times people say, oh, the Old Testament is all about the law. Actually, the law came in, you know, when you look at chapter 20 of Exodus, do you know what chapter preceded that? Chapter 20? Yeah, 19. Okay, got it. Uh, what's in 19? 19 is covenant love. 19, he's saying, hey, I love you this much. Oh, by the way, I love you so much that here's some, here's some guidelines for your life. This is how I want you to live your life. So if you're going to respond back to my love, and, and this really reflects me, this is how I want you to live. And so that's how he's established that. So, so that's where we're headed. We're going to talk about what it means to walk in the light. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And then we're going to dive into this text. Father God, you sent your Son, our Savior, to be the light of the world. 
We thank you that according to John 14, 6, he, Jesus, is the way to you, the truth about you, the very life from you to us, made available to us by grace through faith in the person and work of our Savior, Jesus. May the light of Jesus dispel all darkness in our lives this morning. There's not a more life-liberating, soul-satisfying life than to know you, to walk with you, to enjoy you, to, to obey you, to serve you, to live for you. God, that's our desire. Teach us what it means to walk in the light. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at this text. I'm going to uh, maybe define a few words as I work through it. So let's walk through it kind of slowly. And then we're going to look at, let's see, I've got one, two... Three, four big ideas with some sub-ideas underneath it, but five big ideas of what it means to walk in the light based on this text. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality... Stop there just for a minute. That's a sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is what's, what that word means. Sexual immorality and all impurity. That just means having thoughts about that and letting those thoughts, you entertain those kind of thoughts, impure thoughts. Or covetousness. That would be also greediness, desiring after the things, this inordinate desire after the things that you don't have. Uh, covetousness is also seen in our worry, worry about money or envy. So those would be evidences in our own life. So he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. There's quite a bit there. Just look at those words. I mean, that pretty much takes care of all late-night TV right there, doesn't it? Um, a lot of primetime TV, just a lot of the stuff that goes on. Um, a lot of the movies are saturated with this kind of uh, talk. So he just says, that should let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Those are those innuendos. I mean, just that outright... Uh, sensual, sexual kind of language that, that would be inappropriate, and then it would just be uh, the innuendos or the double-meaning kind of things that we say sometimes. That's what he's talking about here. And let me just say this, that any time that you call someone, a, you know, a body part, it's, it's you know, it's, uh, it's demeaning to them, but it's also demeaning to the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Uh, anytime you use words too, like, you know, God damn you, you know, things like that, or hell. It's, it's there God will damn people to hell for all eternity. That's some pretty serious stuff. The Bible talks about that. And so what it does is it tends to lose any kind of uh, meaning when we throw those words around and then we, we use language. And that's what he's talking about here. He says that stuff shouldn't even be named among you. That shouldn't even be a part of your vocabulary, except thanksgiving. Man, it stirs appetite for God that you want to exalt the King and the glorious Lord who saved us. He says, that's, that's, he's just saying that's inconsistent with someone who really understands the love of God and is walking in the fullness of what he's done for us. For you may be sure 
of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral and impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Remember what idolatry is? We've talked about it, I think, last week. It's just loving, trusting, enjoying anything more than you love, trust, and enjoy God. Now, that might be a new concept for some of you that are, maybe aren't, haven't walked this Christian life very long, but like, what? You can actually love and enjoy and uh, you know, desire God more than anything else? Absolutely. That's what the Christian life is about. You find greater pleasure in him than you find in anything in this world. And so idolatry would define greater pleasure in anything in this world more so than him to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things more than the creator. But notice what he says here, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says if, you're, if this is a way of life for you, I mean, this is obviously you're not walking in the light. And so it would be questionable whether you really have fellowship with God and you've you got to take a serious look at your life. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Second chapter of Romans says that God's storing up his wrath against those that, would, that, have, that have trampled on his name, that have rejected him. They think that, hey, I can do whatever I want to do. I'll be the God of my own life. That's the essence of sin. And so the wrath, he's, he's storing up wrath, according to Romans chapter 2, against sons of disobedience. Now, for those of us that are believers, the wrath of God was placed upon Jesus, and so we don't have to face the wrath of God. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we're perfect. We still have to struggle through all these things, but, but we, because we put our faith in Jesus, we stand before God completely perfect, sinless. That's amazing. And yet many of us still struggle with all this whole list of things that we're talking about. But the fact that you struggle with it is evidence that you're really wanting to walk in the light and do that which honors him. And he continues on in this conversation, so he gives us really a lot of good, good insight. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Then he defines what it is. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. He's just saying, wow, this is, a, this is a wonderful way to live. It's a great way to live. It's a, it's a super way to live. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When you understand what Jesus has done for you, you want to please him. You want to live your life for him. If you don't want to please him, it's probably because you're not living in the reality of what he's done for you. Maybe you haven't really entered into it. You haven't fully received it by faith. Then he says, take no part in the fruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, what that means is try to live your life in such a way that it would convince others that the best way to live your life is to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ. That your life should be obviously more attractive than a life of sin. And your passion for Jesus should be greater than your passion for anything else. And so that's, that, that exposes it. It exposes the... Uh, the unfruitful ways of the world, for it is shameful for even shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For everything, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, "Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see the contrast? He talks about walking in darkness, and then he kind of continues on. and talks about this walking in the light. And, it's, and he's just saying, well, this is, this is a much more wonderful life to live when you're walking in the light and you're, you're living for Jesus and living for his glory because of his love according to his word. And so this is God's word to us this morning. He's speaking to us through his word. So here we go, walking in the light. Here's the first one. Walking in the light means knowing your identity, therefore walking in love. You see that in verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Um, I'm sure this has happened to you. When our kids were at home and we were raising our kids, there were times when our kids would do something that we thought, what? where did he get that? Of course, my wife would look over at me, Nancy, and go, I wonder where. Like father, like son. And, you know, we'd see these kids kind of mimic us or be doing kind of similar things. And, and it, it doesn't look so bad on us. We don't feel like it looks so bad until we see it. We see a little mini me as they're acting out in some way using maybe language or attitude that's very consistent with who we are. More things are caught than taught in the home. And that's what he's saying here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You're just going to... You're going to reflect God. You hang out with God. You get to know God. You love God. And that's kind of the idea that he's talking about here. Now, this is important. Let me, let me reiterate it. Let me, once again, it's not imitation that makes beloved children. It's beloved children that makes imitators. It's when you begin to understand how much he loves you and you live in the reality of his love. Your heart is ravished by his love. Then you begin to imitate him. You begin to take on all of who he is. Here's the next fill in the blank. Here's a couple thoughts as it relates to this. Walking in the light, knowing your identity, therefore walking in love. Identity apart from God is inevitably a sandcastle. We've talked a lot about that. If you look at your disappointment, your inordinate disappointment, discouragement, and disillusionment, how many ever feel disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment in life? Show of hands, show of hands. Yeah, all of us do. If you were to look at, at why, typically it is because you have misplaced your identity. Your, your object of worship is being threatened, blocked, or lost in some way, therefore creating this uh, inordinate uh, discouragement, uh, disillusionment, um, disappointment. Identity apart from God is inevitably a sandcastle. What do I mean by that? If you build your identity on your marriage... Eventually, one of you is going to die. If you build your identity on your kids, eventually the kids are going to grow and you know grow up and move on with their lives. And, and and they might not turn out the way that you want them to turn out. And therefore, your whole life is going to come crashing down. If you build your identity on your job, eventually you're going to have to retire. Or maybe they might even fire you with a downturned economy. 
If you build your identity on your home, I mean, that's a sandcastle. You build your identity. And by the way, all of those things, those, that misplaced identity, ultimately it, it, it leads to emptiness and enslavement. But you build your identity on Jesus and you will forever be um, fulfilled and you'll never be more free. Than, than to know him, to have him in your life, and that's the, the essence of the purpose of your life is to know him. In Matthew 7, uh, 7 through 11, he says that if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how many parents love giving good gifts to their kids? How many kind of probably err on giving them maybe too many good gifts? I think American, uh, yeah, well, I mean, we kind of almost spoil our kids. We love to give our kids good things. I love giving my kids and my grandkids. I love doing that. And he says, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. You're not perfect. You have sin. And yet you love to give good gifts to your children. And this is what he says. How much more does your daddy in heaven love to give good gifts to you? Now, do you see God of the creator like that? Because that would be an accurate perspective, that he just loves you, adores you, loves to give good gifts to you. In fact, There has never been or will be a parent on earth who wants joy for their children as much as your Father in heaven wants joy for you. His heart is bound up with your complete joy. And every parent, you ask any parent, and you would, you know, most parents are about as happy as their most unhappy child. How many would, how many relate to that? I mean, you want your kids to live satisfying, fulfilling lives. And so you, you attach your heart to their well-being. And the Bible just says, even more so does your Father in heaven do that to you. Here's the next point on your notes. You know your identity is in being a beloved child of God when you live with a sense of awe and wonder and love philanthropy. Now here's one of my favorite verses. It's been a while since I've, maybe a few months since I've recited it, but... It's this one, 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has, what's the word there? Lavished. It's one of my favorite words. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called what? Children of God. He's using, in, in the Greek, this is an idiomatic phrase. Idiomatic phrases are like, it's raining cats and dogs. It never does that here in Phoenix, and so we can never say that. But... Uh, but it's, it'd be trying to translate that into uh, some other language. It wouldn't make any sense. They'd go, raining cats and dogs, that's weird. Uh, and so that's what he's using, an idiomatic phrase, and so it's hard to translate. So the translators didn't know how to do it. But all they could say is, wow, how great is the love. Wow, this is out of this world. Do you have any idea how much God loves you? This is amazing. So there's that sense of indebtedness. That you forever feel indebted to God. There's never an attitude of entitlement. Hey, God, I, I came to church and I read my Bible and I prayed. No, you have no idea what, he, what he's done for you, how much he loves you. So you're still locked into religion. That if I do these things, then God will bless me. No, he's already blessed you more than you'll ever, ever deserve. And so that's what he's saying. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. So I can tell when I'm living in the reality of that, there's that sense of awe and wonder. Oh my goodness, I can't believe you're in my life. I can't believe I have a relationship with you. That would be an accurate uh, representation of someone who really knows Jesus and is walking in the reality of that. But also this next one is this love philanthropy. Turn to the person next to you real quick and see if they know what that word philanthropy means. 
if they know. Real quick. What is, what is philanthropy? Any philanthropist in the house? I would like to know you. We've got a place for your money. Um, and that's what it is. A philanthropist is just someone, it'd be like uh, Bill Gates or uh, what would be the uh, other Warren Buffett. Those guys are philanthropists because they have just so much money. What should we do? We'll put a billion here and a billion there. And they've been known to do that. And, uh, and, uh, but love philanthropy is that, man, your life is so saturated with the love of God that it just overflows your life. It's that you, you're receiving so much love from God that you recklessly give it away without expecting anything in return. I mean, you're not, you know, somebody snubs you, oh, oh well, no big deal. Are you kidding? He loves me. My life is so filled up, you know. Somebody cuts you off on the freeway, oh, oh, well, hope they get to their destination safely. God bless you. You guys laugh, huh? haven't been quite that filled up, Pastor Ray, with God's love. <laughs> Got it. I know. I'm right there with you. But it's, I mean, that's just, that's what, it, what it's all about. In fact, it says in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, you'll notice I gave you some, I gave you a lot of cross-references. Uh, that light keeps going off and on, doesn't it? There must be something about this section over here. That it keeps getting dark. What does that mean? You guys need prayer. We'll give special prayer here at the end for that, that side right over here. But uh, these lights are messed up sometimes. I don't know what the deal is. There's something in the lights. In Matthew five forty three through 45, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, this is Jesus speaking, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What is he saying? He's saying, you're imitating your Father in heaven. There's nothing that makes you more like your Father than when you're loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So that would, that's kind of a good goal. So here's the deal. I don't beat myself up when I find myself not being loving. I get back to knowing. I've got to get back to my identity. I'm obviously not walking in the reality of my identity. Does that make sense? So if I find myself a bit unloving and I'm not really loving my enemy, I don't say, come on, I've got to do better than this. Pull myself up. Come on. Try harder. You don't do that. You get back to your identity. And this knowing your identity, therefore walking in love, uh, knowing is not just a, a, it's intellectually coherent. Oh, yeah, I'm a child of God. It's existentially compelling. It's something that goes from your head to your heart. Knowing your identity, therefore walking in love. Here's the next one. Knowing sin's nature, therefore walking in obedience. When you see the sin's nature, and I mean, we went through quite, quite a list there. Uh, it's an interesting thing. We're studying in our small group, going through the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 4, it has an interesting uh, observation about sin. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Chapter 4, verse 7, uh, God says to Cain, he's the one that killed Abel, he says, uh, sin is crouching at the door. It desires, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It almost gives you the idea that it's like a, it's a tiger or lion, lion just waiting to jump on you and control you and enslave you. We need to understand sin's nature 
went through verses 3 through 14, talked about the various sins, the darkness. He's just saying, man, that's a bad way to live. And in that, we get a few ideas. Here's the next one. We are sinners by nature and nurture. We get this idea of nature, so it's just a natural inclination of our heart. We were born this way. I know it's hard to believe little Judah Russell is a little sinner, okay? Now, he'll, he'll be acting out here when he hits the twos. How many would agree with that? You, you know, yeah. When he hits, all parents know that when they start hitting the terrible twos, you got a little two-year-old telling you where to get off. You know, not in quite those words, but they kind of, you know, they can like, hey, get away from me, and I can do my own thing, and don't, you know, and I want candy. They want to eat whatever they want to eat and do whatever they want to do. And, and so it's kind of interesting, but that's all part of that nature. And so we've got to be careful not to nurture that. So we are sinners by nature. He said in verse 8, you were darkness. That literally means you were darkness. That's, that's who you are. That's by nature. That's where you wanted to go. You wanted to, you wanted to worship and make the object of your worship anything and everything other than God. That's the natural inclination of our heart. And that can also be nurtured in us. Verses 6 and 7 makes that clear. Let no one deceive you. So the stuff we, we listen to, we watch on TV, you know, whatever it is, that can all be either nurturing you towards the nature, your sinful nature, or nurturing you towards thanksgiving and praise and, and cultivating within your heart greater capacity to experience Christ. He says in verse 7, do not become partners with them. So think about the stuff that you watch on TV as it relates to this list. Is it nurturing the appropriate kind of appetites within you. So we are sinners by nature and nurture. And everyone has to come up with their own sense of convictions as it relates to what movies to go to. I'm not going to tell you what movies to go to and what not to go to. Those are personal convictions based on what God's doing in your life. Because everybody's wired up a little bit differently. But that's part of your personal convictions as you walk with Christ and as he leads you. Here's the next one. Sin is both external behavior and internal motive. We see that in verses 3 through 5. He says, but sexual immorality. So he's talking about the action. But then all impurity is talking more about really the thoughts, the motives. And then covetousness also, he's talking about those motives. So he's not just saying, you know, we need to be careful about what we do. But, but would you guys agree that you can do the right things for all the wrong reasons? Would you agree with that? And he's saying, don't do that. Don't do all the right things for the wrong reasons. Do the right things for the right reasons. Make sure you have the right reasons and you're doing the right things. Because when you do the right things for the wrong reasons, because it's all about you rather than about his glory, you're motivated out of fear or pride. Uh, that, that, that doesn't actually... And we're gonna, we'll talk about it a little bit later on in, in the future, future studies. But that's called, uh, called common virtue. And really, you haven't taken care of the, what is fundamentally wrong with all of us is it's self-centeredness. So you can actually do right things out of self-centered reasons. You can do wrong things out of self-centered reasons. So when you're talking about motives, you're just saying, make sure you're doing it out of a love for God. You're an imitator of God because of his love for you. Even as it says in that first verse, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Oh my goodness, that's what should, should drive your life. And so here's the next one. How do we break the power of sin in our lives? I know this is how I've been able to work through the issues within my own life. The power of sin's attraction is broken by the power of God's attraction. And we see that in verses 8 through 14. He makes this contrast. He talks about living, you know, don't get drunk, 
you know, uh, be spirit-filled. In essence, he's just saying, you know, the, the pursuing of the things of this world, it's dumpster diving compared to the banquet table that God has. Okay, it's the, it's the mud puddle compared to the uh, condo on the beach. You know what I'm saying? The Caribbean cruise. When you begin to get a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, that sin is going to look ridiculous to you. In fact, you're going to develop a hatred towards sin. And to be quite honest, I still struggle sometimes. Sometimes I don't have the hatred and I recognize, I go, wow, I have kind of an attraction. Stop. Wait a minute. Obviously, I need to do those things that help to nurture my understanding of who Jesus is. And so, so that's part of it. How do you break the power of sin? How do you do that? You break the power of sin's attraction by the power of God's attraction. You want him more than you want sin. The reason why people sin, sin people don't sin out of duty. Sin, people sin because they think they're going to be happier. The Bible says, wrong. It's only temporary. It's short-lived. It enslaves and it's empty ultimately. And, and, but, but when you pursue Christ, it's kind of the law of diminishing and return with sin, but it's the law of increasing and return with Christ. A couple quotes here from Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century uh, theologian, probably, I believe, one of America's greatest theologians. If you get the chance to read some of his stuff, it's pretty heavy stuff. I quote him from time to time with some pretty heavy-duty stuff. But listen to what he said. This was from a, a, a sermon that he did. It was called Youth and Pleasure of Piety. So he's speaking to youth. A couple quotes, and this is what he says. He says, There is a powerful vice grip that sin exercises on the human heart that mere shouts of denunciation and religious scolding and the intimidation of church authorities cannot dislodge. The promise and allure of sinful gratification must be countered, must be overcome by the promise and allure of gratification in God that is sweeter and more beautiful and more exquisite and more satisfying. He goes on and he says, The pursuit of God brings delights of a more sublime nature, pleasures that are more solid and substantial, vastly sweeter, more exquisitely delighting, and of a more satisfying nature that exceed the pleasures of the vain sensual youth as much as gold and pearls exceed dirt and dung. Isn't that amazing? That's a pretty, pretty powerful quote. So when we find ourselves heading after sin, it's because we don't have that sense of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. Next point, knowing life's brevity and wickedness, therefore walking in wisdom. So walking in the light means knowing your identity, therefore walking in love. Knowing sin's nature, therefore walking in obedience. Knowing life's brevity and wickedness, therefore walking in wisdom. Verses 15 and 17, I memorized a number of years ago, so I'm going to quote it, not as it is in the ESV, but it's according to the NIV. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why would he say that? Because the days are evil. He goes on, he says, because the days are evil, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So he's saying, make, you know, take advantage of every opportunity. Because, why? Once today's over, you mark it off your calendar. It's gone. Each and every day when you mark it off the calendar, one less day, you're going to be on this planet Earth. Hey, listen, it's drawing to an end. You're headed towards the finish line. That's why he said, hey, do not be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. Live in such a way that you make your life 
account for the things of God. You live for him and for his glory. So wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. That's your next fill in the blank. So this is what wisdom is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as it says in Proverbs 9.10. So, so here's, first, here's first base. Here's the starting blocks, is that you would begin to fear God. That's where wisdom begins. It's just to have a joyful awe. It's a life-transforming joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that ruins you for anything else. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And that helps you to begin to, it gives you this perspective. It's seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. It comes through personal, intimate relationship with Christ and his word. That's your next fill in the blank, two fill in the blanks. Christ and his word. Jesus and his word is the essence of wisdom. Colossians 2, 2 through 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen through 17 says all scripture is God-breathed. It's the wisdom of God to us. He speaks to us. And here's the next third point. It's not a technique to be mastered, but character to be developed over time. It's not a doorway. It's a pathway. So in other words, you're just going to open up the door and you come through the door and you go, I'm wise. No, it's going to take a lifetime of pursuit. Doesn't happen that way. I mean, I wish it. I wish it did. I wish you'd come forward and you could click your heel three, your heels three times, and repeat after me. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And I wave a magic wand, and you're wise. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. It's not a doorway. It's not a magic wand. It's a pathway. It's a pursuit. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of knowing Jesus, getting to know Him, and know His Word. And it begins to happen over time. Um, and God's word becomes the uh, points of reference for our lives. Uh, we used to do this every summer. We'd go up to Roosevelt Lake. We'd take our kids out there. We'd set up our, you know, uh, canopies and motorhomes and all that other stuff. We never had a motorhome. We had a little tent. But that was our motorhome, a tent. And um, my parents had a motorhome. We'd set all this up, and then we'd have our kids, and they'd go out and play, and then we'd say, hey, in the midst of play... Stay within these points of reference. We give them points of reference. And there was a buoy. I remember out at Roosevelt Lake, there was this buoy that was quite a ways out. And we'd say, don't start getting close to that buoy. When you start getting close to that buoy, you get outside that buoy, there are a lot of boats out there racing. That's pretty dangerous. Well, there was one of those occasions when we were out there talking, carrying on, and someone from another campsite came over and said to us, hey, whose kids are those out there about ready to float out into this kind of... Uh, terrible danger zone and we looked up and it was our natty girl and, and her girlfriend they were just kind of floating away right out into this very dangerous i mean we kind of freaked out but we went out there and grabbed them and we started yelling hey come back in they're kind of looking at us like what and we had to go out and bring them back in there's an interesting verse i put it on one of uh, i put it down as one of the cross references there it's hebrews 2 1 and um it says that pay attention to what you must pay more careful attention to what you have heard lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. So let me ask you this. What are the points of reference within your life as it relates to your marriage? As it relates to your finances? 
as it relates to your physical health. The Bible gives us those points of reference. Obviously, Jesus is the ultimate point of reference as we're walking with him. As it relates to your own spiritual life, how do you know whether you're drifting away from those things that we have learned and been taught? So that's why it's important. That's, that's the way of wisdom is thinking about your life and saying, okay, where's the points of reference? Am I living within those points of reference uh, for my finances? For instance, finances gives you five points of reference within Scripture. There's budget, there's accounting, there's true wealth, there's self-control, there's generosity. Those would be the points of reference. How am I doing with those? There's also the big major E on the I chart, which is Jesus, and your generosity and how you manage your money comes out of your love for Jesus because you're wanting to live for his glory because of his love according to his word. Because you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. So that, that's a point of reference within your life. Do I understand that? Am I living in the reality of that? Does my life, every element of my life, reflect that? That's living in wisdom. Here's the last one. won't spend much time on this one because we're going to talk about it more in the future. But knowing the Spirit-filled life, therefore walking in joy. So walking in the light means knowing your identity, therefore walking in love. Knowing sin's nature, therefore walking in obedience. Knowing life's brevity and wickedness, therefore walking in wisdom. Knowing the Spirit-filled life Therefore, walking in joy. And we've, we've got that in verses 18 through 21. So what is the spirit-filled life? There's all kinds of crazy ideas out there about the spirit-filled life, but let me kind of sum it up for you. It's right here in the next fill-in-the-blank. The Holy Spirit makes us more aware of our resources in Christ. Spirit-filled life gives you what people get drunk to get. People get drunk to become less aware of their problems, the Holy Spirit works completely the opposite by making you more aware of your resources in Christ. See, when we, we drink because we want to dull our senses, it gives us courage, you know, it gives us, you know, a lot of things, that, but the Holy Spirit gives you those things when you begin to see that he's, he begins to make more real to you, more vivid who Jesus is and what he's done and your resources in him. If God is for you, who can be against you? So you pray, Holy Spirit, make that more real to me because I'm facing a temptation, I'm facing a trial. I've got these obstacles that I'm facing. So the Spirit takes the work of Jesus Christ from your head and begins to make it real to your heart. John 16, 13 through 15 makes that very clear. Here's the next one. Sin is what we do when we lose the joy of our salvation. When we lose the joy of our salvation. Remember when David sinned? And then in his repentance, in that prayer, he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You guys remember that? Where would he say that? Was it that he sinned and then lost the joy of his salvation? Or, or was it that he lost the joy of his salvation and then he sinned? Well, he lost the joy of his salvation and then he sinned. That's how, how it typically goes. Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. The reason we fail to be obedient and the reason we make foolish choices in life is because we're not happy enough in Christ. And so it's about really helping us. And that's what those verses are talking about, verses 18 through 19, having just this, this song in your heart, this melody, because you're walking in communion with the Savior who loves you and gave his life for you. We're going to take communion. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Those of you that are going to serve communion, if you'd make your way back to the room... 
I'm going to read to you uh, just a, a love letter from Jonathan Edwards to his future wife, and it kind of encapsulates a little bit of what we've talked about here, but particularly this whole spirit-filled life. Listen to what he says. This would, would be my heart for you this morning, that as we take communion, that you would indeed have an encounter with Jesus. If you haven't encountered him yet, I pray that you will during communion. As we take communion, if you're not a believer, let the communion trays pass by, but you can become a believer this morning by acknowledging your sin, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, and turning your life over to him, turning the steering wheel of your life to him. And then you can feel free to take communion if indeed you want to follow him all the days of your life. You want to make him the Lord of your life. But listen to this letter. His future wife, Sarah Pierpont, They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him that she expects after a while, to be received up where he is, to be raised out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love, favor and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the richest of its treasures, she She disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and sweetness of temper, uncommon purity in her affections, is most just and praiseworthy in all of her actions, and you could not persuade her to do anything thought wrong or sinful. If you would give her all the world, lest she would offend this great being." She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after those times in which this great God has manifested himself to her. She will sometimes go about singing sweetly from place to place and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what she loves to be alone and to wander in the fields and on the mountains and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. What is he talking about there? He's talking about she has this amazing relationship with God. He's talking about the spirit-filled life. That's what God offers us. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. God, we prepare our hearts now for communion. We, it's our desire to, to have that walk with you as Jonathan Edwards was describing for his future wife, that we would, we would know you, we would experience you. Lord, teach us these truths that we could walk in the light. We would know our identity, therefore walk in love. No sin's nature and walk in obedience. No life's brevity and wickedness and walk in wisdom. And know the spirit-filled life, therefore walk in joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As they pass out the communion elements, just hang on to them and I'll walk us through the process. Communion is, a, uh, is an ancient practice. It dates back to the first century. But it's also a very sacred practice that our Savior did this with his disciples and then he passed it on to them to pass it on to us. And it represents what he did for us, which should create within us this awe and wonder (laughs) that the God of creation would uh, 
come down to this earth and die for you. He died for you. You were so sinful. He had to die for you. There was no other way. But he loved you so much. He wanted to die for you. (laughs) That's amazing. The God of creation. No other belief system even comes close to that. That's an amazing understanding of the gospel of grace. When the gospel of grace gets a hold of your heart, you are never the same. And that's what we celebrate this morning. So I I would invite you just for a moment, what are the sins that you need to confess to him you're struggling with? Just confess. He forgives us of our sins. Just keep battling, keep working through those things. He's going to bring wholeness to your life. What are the sins that have been committed against you that you need to bring to him? He will bring wholeness to you. He loves you. He can bring healing. See, these elements represent our completeness, our wholeness in him, our our past sins, present sins, future sins completely forgiven. Our present problems can be managed because he empowers us, he indwells us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And our future is secure in him. Oftentimes, in times like this, this quietness, I just, uh, I begin to apply the truth and love of God specific to where my heart is most restless. Where's your heart most restless? What's going on in your life? What are you stressing out over? What are you anxious about? What are you angry about? What are you depressed over? Let him meet you right there. He is the light of this world. He wants to dispel the darkness in your life. He came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. And that's what we celebrate this morning. The night that he was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he says, take, eat in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. Let's eat together in Jesus' name. That same night he took a cup and he said, this represents my shed blood for you. Think about that just for a minute. The God of creation bled for you because he loves you. Keeping in mind we are more sinful than we ever dared to think, but we are more loved than we ever dared to dream. So he took the cup and he said, drink in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Would you stand with me? Let me quote a couple of verses here this morning as an exhortation to you as we conclude our time together. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, know and do what the Lord's will is. Live for his honor and glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you.